Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, Ripper episode today. I think you're going to love this one. Tim Minchin. Tim Minchin is back. It has been a while since Tim and I have had an on-air conversation, uh, but it was lovely to be able to catch up with him. We had a few technical issues <laughs> during this. We had to stop it down a couple of times and start back up, but uh, I think that we got through it and Tim is such a brilliant guest. And uh, despite the self-effacing nature of his commentary, I think that he is a voice that it is always incredibly interesting to hear from on the range of issues that we talked about in this episode. So if you like this show, I have just been overwhelmed by the generosity of people who have actually signed up to the Patreon, patreon.com slash willosophy. At this rate, if we could keep going like this, uh, really, um, we've got a bit of a goal that if we could get to the $5,000 mark in our donations to the podcast, that would mean in relation to uh, paying Podcast Mike to put the episodes together. And a big shout out to Podcast Mike for today's episode, which you'll have to do a fair bit of technical weaving together to make it all work. Uh, and James Fosdyke, who does all our original art. We did a budget for whether we could uh, do two episodes a week. And the idea would be, once that we are out of isolation, that we would try to do one original episode a week and one catch-up episode uh, like this one that we've got with Tim today, Per week, So we've got a bit of a goal that we might try to do that, well, you know, by the end of the year. So if the page could make it to 5,000, which is uh, pretty achievable, if we could get about double the amount of subscribers we have now, uh, then it'll work out that we should hit that target. And I know this is actually a really terrible time to be asking anyone for money. And if you're out there and you're like, Will, I don't have a job and I don't have any money and I can't afford to give you money for your fucking podcast, then absolutely fair enough. Uh uh, brilliant. Thank you very much uh, for even just listening. There are plenty of other ways that you can help support the podcast. You can pass it on to other people. You can rate it, uh, any of those sort of things uh, you can do to help support the podcast, or you can just listen to it and enjoy it. That's okay too. But for those who have the capacity to help support it, it's been brilliant because it's opened up the creative opportunities that we have with this podcast. So uh, if there is any desire out there for there to be two episodes a week, one brand new episode and one catch-up episode, then if we could get it up to the uh, the $5,000 mark on the Patreon site, that would mean that we could cover all the costs that would be related to doing that. And when we hit that target, if we do indeed hit that target, fuck it, we'll start then. That's probably the right way to do it, actually. So in the meantime, there'll still be some two episodes a week. Uh, uh, last week, there was a couple of crackers with Jan Fran and Jamila Rizvi, who I think uh, are both just uh, brilliant Australian minds and voices in our community. And I wanted to have a good catch up with both of those uh, guests. And so they both came out in the same week. And uh, sometimes there'll be two in a week. Uh, as we go on, but we could officially get in position to do two episodes a week uh, if we got up to $5,000 on the Patreon. And so I uh, appreciate everybody who has gone there to contribute. Um, I, I, re I really, I really do. Even if it's, you know, the minimum donation that you can put there, it's still really important. And I've been incredibly moved by many of the messages that I've got from people on the Patreon page, because I have said there's going to be bonus content up there. We are working on a couple of cool ideas for bonus content on the philosophy page. But in the meantime, the one thing that I said was that I would respond to everybody who sent me a message there. If you've got a suggestion for a guest or you want to have some dialogue around uh, one of the episodes and something that was raised in it or 
something that it meant in your life, it turns out. That's uh, what a lot of the messages tend to be. Uh, people telling me out about a specific guest and something that guest said and how it immediately impacted on their life at that time. Sorry, I'm trying to do this introduction while uh, giving both of the dogs a back scratch and uh, they just almost started to have a fight with each other over who was getting the majority of the back scratch. So look, I'm four minutes in and I don't really want to start this introduction again. So anyway, I feel like that's plugged the Patreon, patreon.com slash willosophy. Uh, thank you if you are able to contribute. And of course, if you can't, I just hope that you're doing well in whatever situation you are in right now. And I hope that you really enjoy today's episode with the brilliant Tim Minchin. I think I, I think I'm, I think I'm becoming more normalised as I get older. I'm just giving up on saying anything contentious because everyone's saying contentious things, shouting at each other. So I'm becoming that sort of old nana going, oh, why don't we just be a bit nicer? Uh, okay, well, let's start officially, but we'll leave that in because I want to talk right. about that anyway. Hello, and welcome well, to that's... Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, here's what I'm doing during quarantine. Because the rule of this podcast was always do face-to-face -face interviews, I think there is an intimacy that comes from a face-to-face -face interview that um, I've always liked about doing this podcast and doing this show. However... Uh, you know, uh, different times call for different approaches. And so during this quarantine pandemic time, I've been catching up with previous guests on the pod podcast. The, uh, the assumption being guests that I already have some sort of rapport with these people. So it does not matter as much that we're not in the same space or the same room, but it still starts with the same conventions. People have heard your voice already. They've already seen the art. They know what names on the podcast, but this is how the podcast opens. I ask the guests who they are. So who are you? I'm Tim Minchin. <laughs> it's got a little pause in the second bit. Minchin. I still find my name hard to say and I've got a cold at the moment. I promise it's just a cold. Uh, Tim Minchin is, a, I always want to go Tim Minchin. And that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> like I've never said it before. <laughs> it did sound a little like that. So yeah. talk to me about what we were just talking about, which is the idea of when you live in a world and particularly at the moment, obviously there are a lot of, uh, pretty uh, inflammatory things happening around the world at the moment and therefore the debate or arguments or language and, and not just language but physicality of that language has had a lot of you know controversy and outrage and violence around it so talk to me about where we're at and where you're at in that context. Well, I've spoken a bit about this stuff um, recently on interviews and stuff and so the people who follow me probably getting sick of it but I I am obsessed by uh, the effectiveness of various styles of engagement and rhetoric. And, and this is where I have to acknowledge my privilege. And I'd say that without my tongue in my cheek, as in I do understand that being able to be really analytical about how you engage with uh, social justice and issues and, and the world um, if you can be objective, that is a privilege because, of course, there are people for whom X issue is utterly uh, visceral and gut guttural, like uh, th there is not a lot of filter you can put on it because they are justifiably incredibly angry and that sort of stuff. But, um, you know, I started my career being polemical and uh, there have been times 
m- mostly just to get laughter but also to kind of inform or or discuss and there have been times when my polemical style has been very effective in activism maybe a little bit um but increasingly i am very very worried that um the the way we communicate with each other uh encourages pe- uh, people to express themselves in a manner which is about them not about what they want to change and so sitting here the week after or the, during this massive black lives matter rising up um off the back of george floyd and during a pandemic and now the black lives matter protests have spilled to australia where it's um very importantly and properly been uh sort of translated to talk about indigenous australians it I I just read all this stuff that I just think we're, we, we're, we're isolating ourselves from the people we want to change, not attempting to change them. We're attempting to shame them into this submission and it, and it has never worked. That has never worked. So whereas I've seen fantastic activism going on, I see a lot of stuff that stresses me out because I just think, I don't think you are thinking about trying to change people's minds. I think you're thinking about venting. So I don't know. That's where I'm at with that stuff. Do you think that that is a general uh, vibe that we currently have as a population? Uh, or do you think that it is exacerbated by the fact that we have been in lockdown and a quarantine and so many people are just, in a general sense, uneasy and angry and agitated? Or is it just a combination of both? Um, it's a combination of everything. We're at a, a time when being a progressive is incredibly stressful um and i fail all the time to temper my feelings uh you know this criticism i'm sort of implying i I level at myself as well all the time i i often express myself and think and, and and in relationships with people i know i think did i do that to to try and affect positive change or did I do it because I needed to say something to signal my position, to be righteous, to make myself feel right, all those things, right? Um, we, we live in a very strange time within a very strange time and anger has a massive role to play. But I'm trying to figure out what the way we communicate is doing because it feels like it's all getting worse and worse. Can I give you an example that might be quite con- do. contentious coming from a white guy? Okay, well, th- I mean, that's a good place to start. I yeah. mean, again, I think we have to uh, yeah, start with the proviso that we're two middle-aged white guys. And yeah. so everything that's probably said on this podcast is, you know, first, firstly comes from that context that you are often observing what is going on rather than having being to be affected. The, you know, the front line of being affected yeah. by it. It's an yeah. intellectual exercise more than it is yeah. a day-to-day reality. I think that's absolutely right. There's another conversation to have, which is what is the role of those people? Um, You could argue that everyone who isn't on the front line should shut up, but I'm not sure that is quite right because if we only listen to the people most angry... um, No, look, I I know... Uh, Black Lives. I've been because I moved to America a few years ago, and I was very interested um, at, during the rise of Trump. So I started following um, Black Lives Matter people and and African American commentators, and you know the 
guys that a lot of people are starting to know now um actresses and actors but also deray and van jones and you know um like even audra mcdonald who's an actor person i know just listening to those that interpretation of events and and so i i follow a lot of very measured uh people who's like someone like Van's, Van Jones, his whole mission is to do what I'm talking about. So it's not just a white guy position to be, we need to take care of how we talk to people we disagree with. So I would just say that. It's, of course it's not. There's incredible, incredible activists out there from all walks of life saying, guys, it doesn't always work to t- tell someone they're a racist when deep down they that person doesn't feel like a racist, you know. So the example I was going to give is I have seen a lot of my friends, white privileged people living in Australia, posting stuff online that basically says, if you say all lives matter, you're a racist. You're an idiot. You don't understand. Now... That's a good example because I think I really understand why people's all lives matter repost is so sort of offensive and so it makes me angry, right? Because I understand why Black Lives Matter is a slogan and how important it is. But everyone who says all lives matter is not necessarily a horrible racist. There's someone who have gone, well, hold on, don't all lives matter? And they just haven't read the things you've read. They haven't listened to the people you've listened to. They haven't had the privilege of your education, right? If you really understand as a white fella the Black Lives Matter slogan and why it's important, it's because you've had the privilege of hearing some voices and reading some stuff and you've informed yourself and great, you're an ally, you're on board. Not everyone has done that. And it's not because they're evil. And if you scream at them, racist, you said all lives matter, then is that going to be the quickest route to helping them understand? Now, yeah, on the, well, I, you know, I on agree. The, well, so I can I just talk to that for a second because I, I like what you're saying there because I think that um, one of the things that we do make a mistake of very much is judging other people for not knowing things that we've only recently learned ourselves or totally. that we've had the luxury of time All the to time. learn ourselves. And particularly as professional communicators, you and I and the journalist class and the media class and these sort of people who actually have three or four hours a day to sit around reading articles on the internet and actually come up with an opinion on these topics. That in itself is a luxury and a privilege that needs to be factored in when you're then judging other people that they are not as far down, uh, you know, understanding. That's right. And can I just be clear? It tends not to be my black friends who are screaming. It tends to be my white or other coloured social justice people. And I get where it's coming from. It's coming from a place of wanting change. But I'm not sure a lot of my social justice progressive friends have as a primary filter, how will this help? And they say things like, we just, you know, you've got to all do this, sign this petition. And God, I just think so much of it is just screaming in, in, in your own bubble and signaling that you are on top of this. I, I, I have felt desperate over the last two weeks as I'm sure many people have but I have I have not can you hear my dog barking um I have I have felt very unsure of how to be 
um, I've been very critical of myself uh, with trying to make sure anything I say or do about Black Lives Matter is about being helpful, not signaling that my brand is aligned with this brand, you know. And so it, it's actually... I, I do... I do find progressives, I, I, feel, I feel like we're very bad at taking any criticism about the way we communicate, you know, and I include myself. I try to be really self-critical and try and figure out where I'm just virtue signaling, where I'm just trying to make me seem like a good guy and where I'm trying to do things that help. And I, I just, I really want, I want to promote that message a bit. So, okay, so when you think about this yourself, you know, you as a communicator, because that's at the end of the day, when you go online, you're not just going online in the way that some other people might be just going online to an express an opinion one way or the other. You you are a media organization. You have enough followers of what you do on social media, you know, that really mean that you are, you have your own audience. Yeah, that I have you more followers to speak to. Yeah. Than a lot of Australian newspapers have online. Or radio stations yeah, have yeah. listeners. So You've got to understand that when you go online, you some, in some ways at least have the responsibility to think about the way that you're communicating in the way that we would ask those other people to think about the way that they're communicating. So yeah. how do you then judge when is a good time to go in and yeah. when is a good time to sit back? Because there's a lot of you know argument you, you mentioned before, and this is one that I, I think is reasonably relevant, which is sometimes there is a good time for the people who are not affected by the issue directly to shut up and let the people who are affected by the issue directly speak. And then there is that extra thing, which is, but does real change happen if some of those who have something to give up don't get on board with those who are asking them to give it up? And yeah. they are, and and how much you balance those two things and where you balance those two things personally? I mean, this all becomes uh, very quickly a conversation about me and how well, I is, deal with my your, life. A podcast. This is a podcast <laughs> about you. Okay. So technically, so uh, I would like to hear I, what you think. First. I, I try to make sure. So when I put out a song a few weeks ago with Briggs, um, which was just a sort of ScoMo takedown, Scott Morrison takedown tune that Briggs wrote that I wrote a chorus for. Happily, I got a lot more hate than Briggs, so that's nice for a change. <laughs> Although the hate he got was standard, unbelievable racist bullshit. But the hate I got was, oh, here's Minchin again, typical lefty, doesn't care about anything, but, you know, and, and that... Um, that's ridiculous because calling me a typical lefty is meaningless because um, it doesn't it doesn't say anything it doesn't take into account all the positions I've taken and it, it doesn't mean anything I've never aligned myself to any political party in Australia but it, it it indicates a problem which is that my ability to affect change relies a bit on me being sensible about when I raise my voice now I can affect nearly no change on the planet because. Um, it's you know I'm just a dickhead songwriter, but I, I I can do some stuff, and I have had reasonable results with fundraising and uh, highlighting issues in the past. If I raise my voice every time there's a, a progressive issue, then it becomes diluted and I just become a cliche, you know. So I need to I I, I always go, is what I'm doing going to change anything? I, I don't sign petitions that are just going to fall in the bucket of petitions. I don't. 
tell people to um, donate to things that I think are probably already over-donated. Do you, do you know what my phrase has been in the last six months? Flatten the curve of our responses to things. Mm. This idea of flattening the curve in this pandemic is really useful as a, a data experiment. People don't think in graphs. I think in graphs all the time because I'm um, boring. But um, but the, the flattening the curve thing was so great to see people understand that 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 you could have a disease uh, uh, you know if you don't control your vec- vectors your disease spread goes like this and it will go like that and what we want to do is create a flattened curve i w- without taking away the importance of protest and anger and all that i think a lot of us need to flatten the curve of our response because i want to know in one month from now whether black lives are still going to matter to my social justice friends online what are they going to be doing in one month which isn't to say it's not important that everyone's mobilizing now and seizing this moment that's very important but are you listening hard enough are you listening hard enough not posting a black square that's fine too but not just posting a black square not and i'm not lecturing you i'm i'm doing what i'm not lecturing any listener i'm i'm saying what i think Am I listening hard enough so that in a month, six months, a year, I'll be still trying to be an ally, still trying to help in the tiny ways I can or in the big ways if you want to dedicate your life to it? Or am I just getting it done now so I can go back to my life? Am I just getting my activism done now so I can, so I can get back on to not worrying about it? Because I feel squeamish about that. If, if, you, if, if this week is the only week of the year you read anything by black people in America, you, you post anything about it, you donate anything, if this is the only week, then I think that's fine. It's fine. It's fine. That's fine. It just feels, it makes me squeamish. It makes me think it's trendy, not caring. Okay, well, let me ask you an, a different question then. I'm going to ask you a different question about yourself really bring it directly back to your work. So you talked about early on being quite polemic in the way that you expressed yourselves and comedy can often be at its purest in a polemic way. This is bad. This is good. I hate this. I love this. They are easy ways to connect to comedic ideas. How do you connect to more complicated comedic ideas? Is that a great challenge? Is it something that you are challenging yourself to do? How do the audiences respond to it? Well, I... I sort of, as we've talked about, I sort of did comedy for a while and basically comedy is not even in the top five things I do anymore. However, I have been on tour in the last since we talked and it was a really great tour and my aim with that tour was to let myself be who I am as an artist and a human in the world now. So some, like all my comedy shows, the songs were not always silly. Some of them, you know, ever since I started doing this job, my, my comedy shows, in inverted commas, were are really cabaret shows, right. you know. They make people laugh and then at the end there's a ballad that's meant to make you cry and stuff. But definitely I tried to take this challenge. In my last tour, I did bits of really straight-up silly stand-up. But the biggest bit of talk was this conversation exactly this conversation which was 
It starts with an analysis of the idea of confirmation bias, that we're much more likely to believe things we all already believe and discard data that contradicts our beliefs. And we just go around firming up our beliefs. That's a, a neuropsychological human tendency. It's not anyone's fault. It's just that the internet has made it a thousand times worse because of algorithmic editing, because the internet helps us only support our own arguments and helps us discard any argument that is contradicts us. And I'm not talking about we should all be reading about why black people are actually useless, but we could be reading about what's a different way to use government funds to help Indigenous Australians from a, a more conservative Indigenous voice even, you know. We could be reading more. I'm not advocating any position i'm just saying we could be reading more widely and the internet helps us not so i went on about that and then i had a massive rant about exactly what i've just been trying to articulate which is screaming at people that they are baddies has never and will never work agitating the government through protest has worked sometimes a polemic can garner support on the side you already have, can help radicalise people who already agree with you. A great polemic can make a, someone sitting on the fence or someone who's a soft lefty or thinks probably Aboriginal people are treated a bit unfair, a good polemic can get them properly on side. So yes, great, know that, understand that. But a screaming at someone that they are racist will not make them less racist. It'll make them, because of what in psychology they call the backfire effect, double down on their belief, firm up the walls around their belief harder and find, and they will be impossible to penetrate because you have defined them as the other and they will wave that flag proudly. So, in short, I have got less funny <laughs> <laughs> I have got less funny, but I got some laughs in my in my thing. But that that monologue on my last tour dried the room up. It started with laughs and dried the room up. And you know, Will, because you've done it, and a lot of us comedians, in perhaps a self indulgent way, you know the thrill of having people laughing and stopping them. And some audiences hate that they feel manipulated, but it is part of the craft. Is going no. Actually, I don't want you to laugh now. I want you to feel a bit shocked. I'm going to let you off in a minute, you know. I was talk Do you agree with that? I was talking to uh, a friend the other night about the nature of uh, comedy in particular and the relationship with the audience when it comes to a comedy show. And this may not be a perfect analogy, but let me walk you through it regardless. I was just using the idea of a cake. And I said to him, the way that I think about it a lot of the times is, that, you know, your ideas are the ingredients of your cake. And then you have some sort of preparation process, which is your writing or for you, you know, perhaps writing songs or structuring and these sort of things. And that's your preparation. But the stage is where it actually gets cooked. But the thing that you're cooking isn't your show. Because I could actually stand outside this office right now and do my show. Like the show exists. What I'm creating isn't the show. The show's already been created. What I'm creating on that night is the audience. The audience is the cake. And what I'm doing with yeah. the audience and what they're doing together in this room, what they're sharing, when they all laugh at something or, or they all have their breath taken away from something, is actually what you're baking on the night. Yeah, I love it. It's really good. And, and, and what, it, what it says is actually 
The show exists as ingredients, but the chemical reaction that makes the cake turn spongy and fluffy and whatever, tasty, it happens over and over again. You're walking in with the recipe and the, and the method um, and you're baking the cake anew every night. And that's why even though I am less a comedian now and more just a guy who does a really entertaining, slightly didactic concert, <laughs> it, what, what I love is that Every time I, I, I can sing songs, I can sing Prejudice, which I've sung a thousand times. And it, every night, even when I have my band around me or an orchestra, every night something I have an opportunity to adjust my timing and my expression, my volume and my fingers to kind of uh, pull, pull up a little bit before that and release a little earlier than that. And it, 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 it is the joy of having come having done so much comedy is you real you realize that that you get to bake the cake again every night and that's why i love performing because I, I never get bored well, you said before that you consider yourself what a comedian that comedy to be fifth on the list of things that you are did you just pluck fifth out of the air or is it literally if you made a list would it come in on fifth i don't know i mean it, i i guess i'm a songwriter and most of the songs i write these days are not uh, comedy songs I'm just this, this year I'm putting out an album which is completely not comic I mean it's still got quirky lyrics and stuff but um they're storytelling songs but they're not designed to make you laugh uh I I write um I've been writing tv shows and films and I've been acting in them so songwriting performing pop music acting writing writing musicals. So yeah, comedy is probably about fifth. How do you allocate time to the various things that you do? Like creative energy, I mean, not just physical time, but how do you know right now I want to write a TV series and how, right now I want to write an album or I want to go on tour doing comedy? Is that instinctive? It is carefully planned as part of a bigger mix? Like how do you decide which creative projects you're going to throw your energy into? Um, it's a long, boring answer to that, like all my answers. But um, I guess I'm very lucky in that in the last five or ten years, it's been about um, accepting or saying no to projects. So I, I don't... Um, well, except my album has been 20 years in the making and I'm actually going to make a podcast about that 20-year journey um, because, of course, I've been a songwriter since I started writing songs at the age of 10 and I've never made a studio album. And when I took to comedy in the early 2000s, I was kind of trying to get the comedy off my chest so that I could get... Because the record companies who I'd been sending demos to were like, this is like novelty music. And I was, you know, I went into comedy because I was like, oh, if I just do that, then I'll... I'll get that off my chest and I'll go back to writing proper songs. I felt like I needed to separate my comedy from my uh, not comedy. And and then suddenly I got really, really busy and here I am. So, so the album has been um, just waiting. And, and the, but, but the rest of it is just about balance because I love doing everything I do so much. I just, it's like, how do you allocate times? time to your five children you go well I want to spend time with them all so I've just got to allocate the time so you know I, I I made a tv show a couple of years ago and then I went I've got to get back on tour because my audience hasn't seen me on tour for seven years and then I thought oh, I'll get my album done before I do another musical and then I'll go you know so the, the other answer is it's really fucking hard to to stay focused and to find the time and to be a good dad 
um, not hard like mining coal, but just something I have to uh, battle with. Um, how, how how do you work best? Uh, do you work best if, if you're concentrating on one project at a time or do you work best if you have a couple of different things that you can fiddle around with? I've always been completely one-minded, so I'm, I'm best if I just get obsessed by a thing. But at this stage in my career, I just have to get better at the other version. I, I'm, I'm currently struggling a bit because I'm trying to keep, you know, my album's finished, but there's a lot of work around its release to be done. And I'm trying to make progress on my new musical and trying to work on a feature film that I'm meant to be helping write. Um, so yeah. And of course it's COVID. So every fucker's doing a podcast. And so I'm doing, I have to talk to Will Anderson on my public holiday. (laughs) No, I appreciate you having me. (laughs) Well, that is true. And I appreciate the time that you're giving to me, but I've been doing this, you know, free form of entertainment for a long time before there was a global pandemic. And I just need to put that on the record. And uh, so the question that I, I wanted to ask you, I guess is, um, what do, what do I really want to ask you? I want to ask you about the nature of process, but I want to ask about what it is when you're at your best during that process and what it is when you're at your worst. So in a creative sense, is there a zone that you go into or is it just a amount of time that you can spend on something or is it, and then when it's not working for you, why is it not working for you? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Because you know me, Will, I don't believe in inspiration and I'm I'm not mystical. I don't have a special hat or or a special, you know, pipe I have to smoke or a special chair like Roald Dahl. I I like I have worked very hard over the years with live performance as well to divest myself of all superstition. I think we might have talked about this before. And and so I I like to think my my work is my job. And I, I don't have a posh studio. I have a spare room in my house. Um, I don't think, I don't, I think it's just work. And I think you write well when you write well. But I sometimes wonder whether I need to create a bit of a narrative around it. Because, for example, at the beginning of the lockdown period here in Australia, I wrote a song for a Netflix film, a song for the new Matilda um, feature, uh, a, a, another something and and uh, an opening for my new musical i just i lost three kilos i just was slamming it this is a bit of an unusual time but i've really hit a wall in the last few weeks and there's a few family things going on and stuff but i just don't know and and i don't think it's comes from the spheres obviously i just think there's a moment and it's a mixture of self-flagellation as in, for me, productivity often comes when I go, when in my head I've gone, for fuck's sake, Tim, get off your ass, stop thinking about it, stop going down and getting coffee and making excuses, just do it, you asshole. Like, so that narrative's in my head, and I think personalities like me have that narrative in their head, which is a big part of why assholes like me are assholes like me, the self flagellation. Um, but there's other stuff too that I, I, I is harder to control. Um, my kids being happy and okay allows me space that isn't there if my, I'm worried about my kids. And sometimes it's just that you haven't worked for a while and you, you, the well is full, as they say, I think. I think you, what I've learned is 
that self-flagellating guy has to take a freaking break sometimes because sometimes it's just three or four we- weeks where you don't do anything good. And there for me, the weeks I just play piano and keep my fingers moving and, you know, jog and do podcasts and, you know, try not to freak out. As someone who could work all the time, like you said, you know, the myriad of opportunities that are available to you, like good, bad or indifferent, there are a myriad of opportunities to work available to you. Um, You could fill your calendar very easily with those things and... Uh, you do have a family. You've mentioned the fact that you have a family. How is it that you do? You have an intentional approach to how you balance work and family. Is it an instinctive approach? Has it changed over the years? No, I think I'm really bad at it, and it's a really big part of my internal dialogue and my dialogue with my wife and my kids. I, I, I'm not bad at it, as in I'm not absent all the time. I'm I'm around quite a lot, but I'm bad at carving out weekends I'm bad at booking holidays I mean I work all the time I think my kids would say I work all the time and even when I'm not working I kind of might you know the odds of me going through a whole Sunday without saying to Sarah I just need an hour I just I've got these emails and I don't want to start tomorrow with them hanging over me and I just might play the piano for a bit because I'm feeling stressed you know like if I'm not working I feel stressed and I i Almost to the point where I'm thinking for the first time in my life, I probably could do with going and talking to someone, like getting some counseling or something. I think I'm, I think I should be able to at 45 and having ticked a bunch of boxes I never dreamed I'd be able to tick. I, I should be able to slow down now, but I'm so in that mindset that I was when I was 29 before anyone was listening to me which is just like you work harder you work harder you work harder no one said you're allowed to be an artist you work harder that's how you get it and I never edited that when everything started going well I never edited the voice in my head saying you don't get this for free boy this is the uphill climb on the long distance run you run harder on the uphill climb that stuff that weird probably a bit Australian masculine stuff I need to find a way to move on from that narrative, I think. It's a hard one to move on to. Uh, from. I was speaking to Dave Hughes the other day in one of my rare off-air conversations so that I don't get recorded for other people's <laughs> amusement, my actual catch-ups with a friend, and he was talking about the idea that, you know, he's certainly, uh, he was talk- hearing people say, oh, you know, I'll, I'll appreciate comedy uh, when I go back to comedy. But he said he's always appreciated comedy, Perhaps what he hasn't appreciated was the sacrifice that him loving comedy takes on his family and being forced to be home with his family in such a restrictive way. He had just loved it, you know, and he'd loved the extra depth of, you know, communication he was having with his family and the extra time that he was spending enjoying the things that he already had. And, And we were both speaking about that idea of both of us say yes to probably way too many things because when we started out, the dream was that anyone would say yes to anything. And you felt like for years you had to fight so hard for anyone to give you an opportunity. And then when you had those opportunities, you thought, well, I've got to keep going like this because this is what got me the opportunity. So I better keep working at exactly the same pace. And then you don't have that point where you step back in a way and say, well, perhaps now it's I've, I've earned my reputation now I can have a think about how I best balance that in the world and in life and I don't behave like I, I did when I was 25. Yeah, and you've built those neural pathways. They really are physical neural pathways. They're, you have you've used proteins to build bridges 
that tell that story and they're not easy to alter um you know even to the extent things become this is why rich people greedy rich people are greedy because you ever ask someone with a mansion and a helicopter and they've i once talked to a hedge fund operator at a at a corporate i was doing in the time when i was doing corporates a corporate is like you'd go and do a few songs for money for rich people (laughs) um or for a business or whatever. And I was talking to this guy and he was like almost shaking with Australian hedge fund operator in England, like making $100 million for Archie Boussong or something. And and he was like, I need to get out. Uh, it's the level of stress of playing with these numbers. And I'm like, well, just get out. Like surely you've got everything you need. Go do something else. And he's like, I just, I just need to get – I've got these kids and I want them to be secure. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? And he's like, I want them to have a house near us. You know, I want them each to have a house near us. And I'm like, where do you live? And he's like, on the harbour, you know. And it's just like, and he's like, I I used to work in a petrol station and I just, you know, and he's built these bridges that say, I will never be poor again, you know. I will never go hungry again. And he's totally lost perspective that these bridges don't, that they're not relevant anymore. You don't need to buy your kids a house. In fact, by buying your kids a house, you're taking away from them the journey that you got to travel, the self-fulfillment, you know, he, it's totally broken. And for me, I'm not, I've never been really a money guy, partly because I've been very lucky to have never, you know, I got brought up in a, in a secure family. But I was never gifted a lot of stuff, but it now, I was never worried about it. So, so when I got money, it, it wasn't the main narrative. But the weird thing is my competitive narrative like I used to be a bit competitive that, you know, the guy down the road in Perth who also wrote songs for youth theatre companies work might be a bit better than mine. And now I'm like feeling a bit like I should be able to write a better musical than Lin-Manuel Miranda, which means somewhere in my brain, I have a neural pathway saying to me, you should be the best in the world at one of the things you do. Like, why? What the hell is that? As if I, that, so so I have to, I'm constantly trying to say to myself, that those bridges aren't useful now. You don't need to be competitive. You need to now be generous and you need to be thoughtful and you need to be embracing and you need to mentor and you need to become an uncle of the industry, not a scrabbling little kid, you know. And I'm I, I'm doing it, but it takes conscious, conscious choice to not keep clawing. What you just said, I'm so pleased that you said, and what I want to share with you is that could have been me saying what you've just said. Every single thing that you just said in that entire answer, I responded to 100%. But you're doing it, Will. This is what this podcast is. You're so generous with your time and you have been for as long as I've known you because you, to me, were already like done when I came on the scene, I'm like, oh yeah, well, he's a star. He, he can just chill now. But now I know how hard it is to do what you're doing now, which is to try and reflect and spread the love and in, help young people trying to do the same thing and, and talk about what is valuable from your position of avuncular wisdom, you know. But, but I, I get, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very hard thing to, um, it's a very hard thing to admit out loud, but I, I, I really want to be just, as honest as I can be going forward about everything, if I possibly can be, or at least confront myself with the idea of doing that. Yeah. So one of the hardest things to admit to me is 
not just to take that kudos, to take that little pat on the back that sometimes people will say that, you know, hey, you are generous and you are using your position to help out other people, but to admit also that it is conscious, like I have made a decision to try to do it. Some of it is instinctive, clearly, but it is part of my nature. But some of it is also, as you said, a very conscious choice to go, how do I reconcile? Because I've had that same conversation in my head. So one of the things I want to do is try to be honest. And I think honesty also involves acknowledging things when they've said to you without like your natural instinct to be completely self-effacing about something. Because if I just brush off a compliment like that, then I'm really not digging into the reality of it. And I think it goes into that idea of like when somebody presents their life on Instagram or social media, and if you don't show the shitty things as well as the good things, you give other people the impression that these things come easy or that your life is perfect and all these. So for reasons around that and those ideas, I want to speak more honestly about these things. So yes, like I do try to do things for other people in the industry, absolutely. And part of that has been a very conscious decision that I hold myself to sometimes when I don't really feel like holding myself to. And it has to reconcile. And this is the bit that's the hardest bit to admit. And I was so glad that you said it, which was, I absolutely know, I'm, I know that I'm never going to be the best comedian in the world, but there is still a part of my brain and you know the way that my personality is hardwired that judges myself by that very standard you know that totally. still selfishly was like but what if i just worked a bit harder on the show or if what if i just you know yeah. blah 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 then i could be the best comedian in the world which is such a ridiculous idea to, for your brain to even you know mean because what does that even mean like for a lot of people you are you are a lot of people's favorite comedian on the planet because comedy is a completely subjective thing and what you might mean is the most commercially successful but you don't actually want lots of no. money and you don't want to be more famous than you are. I mean, you know, you, I mean, I've made I that that's been so against my instinct. The things I've done that are, you say they're against your instinct, but they're obviously some instinct. So I managed my um, rise in Britain. I stopped doing comedy and left because it was getting I didn't think that was good for my family. So that was hard, which is what made it so hard when the LA thing happened and my movie got shut down because I'm like, oh, I could have been getting more fame. I could have had my own TV show in Britain. I could have been the top of the world with comedy. I mean, the way my comedy career was going, I was, I got to arenas in four years, man. I mean, I was doing all right, right? But I thought, <laughs> I thought I would try and put a lid on it. And I'm really proud of that. But man, I can't pretend it hasn't hurt, you know, like... I, there's a, the little bit of me going, no, I want to be more famous. I want to be more rich. I want everyone to love me. I need everyone to love me. That guy is still screaming away in the background, but I'm proud that I like bopped him on the head a bit because I've, I've got to have a much, much better life, a much better career. That's an incredibly uh, impressive thing to do because I am quite amazed even during this time. So during this time, uh, we've made a we've moved to the hills we've made we've gone back to the country we're back to where my partner is from you know it is a very 
alternative community in which we are living in, you know, progressive in a lot of ways and perhaps a little too progressive in some other ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or not progressive in that yeah. they think that 5G, yeah. 5G caused coronavirus or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So, I was going to say, you'll have anti-vaxxers around the corner, but still. I, okay, so I am in a place where I, apart from the fact that I'm unemployed for the first time in quarter of a century and that I have the big picture worries about the world and about how I'm going to pay my bills and all those sort of things down the track. In a day-to-day -day sense, I've never been happier. You know, my partner and I have spent all this time in this place that is really idyllic and isolated anyway. We've been cooking for each other. We've been hosting small amounts of friends. It's been an incredibly social time. I found it a very creative time. Like, I've loved it. And yet there's this other competing drive yeah. or voice in my head that says, as soon as this is over you've got to go back to how things were before. Yeah. And trying yeah. to fight those two instincts is, is incredibly difficult. Yeah. There's a competitive person that got designed sometime in your teens when you were being bullied at school. The little I'll show them will is just never going to die. All you have to do is figure out what to do with him and how much to believe him. And, you know, the I'll show them, Tim, is the... The thing I need to probably, I probably got to a point where I'm wondering if I need to talk to someone about it because I, I successfully fight him all the time, but it's tiring. You know, I'm not very at peace. However, I get to do all this fantastic stuff because I'm not at peace. And man, I, I woke up this morning to a, an email from a, um, you know, Catelyn Moran, the feminist author in London. Her husband, Pete, is a musicologist and he just wrote, watched Upright, my TV show, and he wrote me this email that said, if I ever get to make something half as beautiful as that, I'll die happy about my show, my show, our show. And then the next email was from the astrophysicist Brian Cox. This has become name droppy, who's a friend of mine, saying he's just listened to my album and he'd, you know, I wanted to talk to him about entropy because one of the songs is about love and decay and I'm doing this podcast about my album. I want to talk to Brian. He's like, I'd love to talk about it. That's so interesting, you know. And so I wouldn't have the burn in me that allows me to put an album out one year, a TV show the year before and tour in between, you know, it has amazing rewards and not just for me, but for people who like my work, you know, it's, it's not like it's about me. It's actually in the end about the people who get moved by something I do or laugh at something I say or have their mind changed. God forbid, God forbid. Um, and so I don't know, like I don't want to kill the burning guy. I don't want to kill the, teenage i'll show you because you know but i don't know if any of that shit helps my kids my kids just want me to be able to like relax <laughs> um okay so has has the current crisis that the world is going through changed the way that you think about your art in any way um it has made me think a lot about the role of art, especially in Australia where it's so overtly held in low esteem by the powers that be. It's made me think a lot about, you know, I, I, you know, Will, that I don't believe that um, one can be credited or blamed for oneself. I mean, I don't, we've talked, we've had the free will conversation. I mean, 
I don't think I am successful because I, I, I deserve it. So everyone that is suffering under this thing, I feel there, but for the grace of luck go I. So I'm having conversations with other arts leaders about how to save theatre and all these big things. Um, it it's changed. I don't know if it's changed. I think I need to keep making the work I was already making. I can't think of anything worse than a world where everyone's making art about COVID and Trump for the next five years. Art should be escapism and should speak to larger truths, uh, you know, more umbrella truths, not specific truths. And so I've I've doubled down on that. I'm like I'm going to make work about the heart you know upright's a good example it's a show about family and self-forgiveness and you know i think we must keep speaking to those stories and i also think as a white straight middle class male i need to be a good ally and and be very very active in making sure there's diversity in how we cast our shows and all those things but i don't think it's my job to speak for people of colour or women or trans people. And and to an extent, I think it's important to keep telling stories about middle-class white guys, not exclusively. But I, I don't think not... I don't think I can suddenly become an inauthentic voice of some other group I've never experienced. I don't think that's the right solution. Can we circle back on the first thing that you said, which was the role of art? in a society because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot also, you know, during this time, you you can't help but think of how immediately we were disposed of, you know, how non-essential an industry we were considered to be. And for a lot of people, not, not me personally, you know, but for a lot of people, it meant they were left with nothing at all. No support system, no government subsidies when everybody else was getting a government subsidy and the arts itself has not been prioritized as something that you could invest in you know let's give the government the benefit of the doubt that maybe something's coming at some stage but based on the fact that there has been nothing up to this point and the indications around it you can't help but think it's not going to be incredibly great news whatever well they have yeah they have they have put a package for the arts out it it's look and i as part of my trying not to be in a bubble have looked as carefully as i can at the i don't believe the government are uh, is is an evil institution trying to destroy voices that oppose them i i think if you as an australian think scott morrison is evil i think probably uh, you're just not going to get anywhere you know that that doesn't sound quite right to me i think the government is uh, mostly Philistines. I don't think there's many people in the government who would have much to say about the role of storytelling in our society, about what art does, about music, about theatre, about film, about architecture. I just don't see them or I don't hear them. I've gone looking as well. And remember, this has come at the end of years of defunding our public arts institutions. So I don't think it's conscious. I just think right-wing governments are never going to prioritise arts funding over to give them credit other things that matter. They're not taking money off us. And yes, there's a whole other conversation about them bailing out bankers and coal miners. So, I mean, I'm pretty close to thinking they're evil, but that that doesn't do us any good because I'm sure... 
I'm sure it, it, it's economics that drives them and there's, there's just a lack of understanding about what the arts does. I, sh- I, I get very nervous talking about that because I don't know the whole story, but everyone else seems to happily talk without knowing the whole story, so fuck it. Um, I, I don't think... Here's a... Let me go sideways. The church that Scott Morrison goes to you know, I, I despair that people think Jesus was magic. I think it's a real pity that we still live in a world where people attribute morality to a magic man 2,000 years ago. I, I can't believe it, you know. But Scott Morrison's church is an arts institution where they tell a story. Jesus is a story. It's a narrative that helps people make sense of the world. And with these... these um. Pentecostally happy clappy churches, they're mostly built on music. Hillsong, which I think is a terrible frickin' enterprise because I, you know, it's homophobic and conservative and they don't pay tax and, you know, they don't dob their granddad in for sexual assault and, you know, it's I, fucking Hillsong, you know. But let's understand that that is a storytelling place, it's a theatre. The problem is they think it's truth and they use their false truth to justify bigotry. But just looking at it from a sort of anthropological point of view, that's a theatre where they tell a story with music. I wish he would understand that that's what a theatre is. You know, he, he uh, Morrison's mob were putting, all those churchy people were putting pressure on the government to say that church is an essential service. Okay, fine. Church is an essential service. People go there for enlightenment and wisdom and entertainment and togetherness. Then theatre is an essential service. And just because it's not the church you believe in, you believe in a dead Palestinian, we believe in the words of frickin', you know, Tennessee Williams and Stoppard and Nakia Louie, and we believe that telling stories with music is important too. It's just that we don't try and use it to hate gay people (laughs) uh so when it comes to the arts themselves and uh, look i think about comedy more than i do perhaps more broadly and that's just because sometimes you think more about the thing that you think you might have some influence in right of course yeah so for me comedy specifically because of the commercialization of comedy over the last 20, 25 years, which in many ways has been great for an emerging industry. The fact that people went from running away to join the circus when I started doing stand-up comedy to the idea that you could go into stand-up comedy as a career where you might get a career in radio or television as a, a writer, a performer, a producer, any aspect of the process. There was an industry, a commercialized industry that was built up around comedy in general. It, there is... And, and this is in no way to devalue the incredibly progressive and um, alternative and interesting comedy that was also being made. But there is a broader mainstreaming of comedy just because of the nature of commerciality. If most of your best comedians are working on the project, and that's not yeah. any disrespect to the show or the people who work on it, but that's the opportunity that's available for a comedian rather than them creating their own work that comes from their heart and what their art was really meant to express. I wonder if this time when it turned out that nobody cared about comedy, that we care a lot and nobody else really cares and we should stop caring what other people think quite as much. I think that would be a great outcome. 
I think that'd be great. Um, I, I don't, I'm not sure I agree with your premise, although I understand the anxiety behind the premise that without a doubt, the commercialization, the, the idea that you can get paid a million bucks to be on Triple M or whatever, sure. But that, that's, you know, and that's what happened in America. Every comedian's like, I'm going to do stand-up. I'm going to do a really good 10 minutes. I'm going to get on Saturday Night Live and then I'm going to have a movie career. Whereas in England, it was never that. You went, I'm going to do a new hour every year at Edinburgh and I'm going to be a touring comedian, which is why comedy in Britain is so much more interesting as a rule than comedy in America. And Australia with comedy, just like Australia with everything, is sort of trying to work out whether it wants to be America or Great Britain, you know. And I I think plenty of Australians understand that there's a couple of ways you can go. You can aim to be commercially viable or you can aim to be a, an agitator, an outsider, you know, and every now and then an agitating outsider will become commercially viable, but um, you have to leave Australia, <laughs> you know. Um, but, but I agree. I agree. I like the idea. I like the idea, the broader idea that you're talking about, that this pandemic will slightly reset us back to a point of like, you do art because you've got something to say and you want to entertain people. Uh, so you spoke about America. I would love to get your take as somebody who has been there but is outside there at the moment about where that country is at. You know, I speak to Dave Anthony on my other podcast and, you know, he probably is at the, you know, the complete end of we are now, you know, in a country that is being run by a fascist dictator and you know if any of these things was happening in any other country because of our kind of hyper normalization of the american experience we can't see what we would clearly assign to another country's leader as being you know something a dictator would do what's what's your general take on what you think the state of the united states of america is at the moment i mean it's just so so this whole conversation we're talking about the effect of this pandemic and work and my priorities and stuff. The thing I haven't been saying is I am on the verge of depressed, like upset a lot of my life because of Donald Trump. I think about that man within the first half hour of waking up. I think about him dozens of times a day. I'm, I've got off Twitter, finally deleted Twitter from my phone and I'm barely looking at it now, like a couple of times a day instead of 10 times an hour. I am so distressed by what's going on in America that I can hardly work. I mean, I, and that, that's something I need to talk to someone about too, because I shouldn't, we, and that's something that informs my feelings about the kind of ah, powder keg feeling all over the world is that we're all feeding into each other's narratives. Of course, no, no one in Australia gives a shit about the people being killed for being atheists in Pakistan because we're only feeding... We, we, we all think what the media is feeding us from America is the truth about the world. And we're all utterly motivated and distressed by what's going on in America whilst happily having spent our lives not really looking in the eye what's happening in various other places where shit's gone bad in the last 50 years. And I am the worst of them. I'm so distressed by America. I don't know if it's because I lived there for a few years or I just, I guess we grew up believing to a lesser extent than they believe it, that America is, despite all its problems and all its hypocrisies, a kind of 
strong goody and we can talk about America's expansionism and militarization and stuff but in the history of humankind a, a, a democratic nation with a huge arsenal was not the worst thing that could have happened in the second half of last century that is much better that a democratic nation with you know it was better that America became the superpower over a communist superpower or a fascist superpower. And to have that safety, to, to see that crumble is very, very distressing for everyone, I think. But what's distressing for me is to watch anti-intellectualism triumph over intellectualism because my entire and I'm not the smartest cat in the room and I haven't read all the books, but my entire, everything I've ever written has really been informed by this belief that, you know, Matilda is about read books to free yourself. Knowledge is more powerful than bullying. That's what Matilda's about. It's what Dahl wrote about. Everything, all my comedy is trying to say, you know, have neuropsychological humility understand your mind understand your biases and your filters understand logic and how we argue try and inform yourself not you don't need to know where america's dropped the bombs or where the oil is or you you can know all that but more than a more than asking people to be informed geopolitically i've been asking people to be informed neuropsychologically and to watch the victory of anti-intellectualism over over smarts in america has broken my heart like i want to cry right now saying it and that sounds like the snobbiest thing in the world but i'm fucking snob i want smart people not every run-of-the-mill guys i mean bless the run-of-the-mill guys i hope everyone has power and has the ability to be free and live their life but i don't want some nice guy as president or some lovely woman who's like your auntie as president. I want the smartest, most wonderfully widely read and widely traveled humanitarians as our leaders. How are we not? How does anyone not think that? It's American exceptionalism is why they don't. They think it's like, yeehaw, this guy likes America better than anyone else. He doesn't know anything else. He's a fool, an absolute philistine fool he has no intellectual curiosity no metacognition no ability to examine his thoughts he is a fascist and 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 it's just i can't bear it i can't bear that the nerds haven't won i thought the nerds were winning so it i think that it's surprise <laughs> and dave said this on fofop the other day but he said the thing that's surprised no one says in history that when it happens it's so stupid that you are surrounded yeah. by such stupidity and that that is one of the most frustrating things about it is that... But it is always stupid. Look at them all. They're always dickheads. They're always sort of knobs, weren't they? All these dictators, Caligula onwards. They were like nutbags. But isn't that, doesn't that then speak to the idea of and the great frustration of the idea that we can win just with a better argument? Because we can't win with just with a better argument. It has been proved in reality that just having a better argument, being able to point out the facts is not enough. No, it doesn't work. But I think the internet has destroyed any hope of that. 
because unfortunately the democratization of communication has destroyed anyone's the 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 more informed you know you can call it the elite but the elite has always involved people from the you know and 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 obviously we want the elite to have people of all colors and all genders and all origins we need to have a a, a democracy even a capitalist democracy socialized enough to elevate voices we haven't heard from and all that but but all those people need to be educated all our leaders need to be educated and unfortunately our ability to curate the information from the educated down and i'm not saying education's the only thing of value there's lots of educated dickheads and lots of ill-educated wonderful people but if we have no ability to curate the flow of information from the informed downwards whether it's an informed mechanic helping you to know what to do with your car or an informed school teacher or an informed knitter or an informed swim coach if we have no way to curate the information we'll have no jumpers no working cars no swimming people if if everything is equal you cannot teach and everyone thinks they are better informed than the teachers I don't know what I, I I mean I'm just depressing everyone now but I don't know how with a free internet I ha- I have a big problem with this uh, I mean a quandary because obviously freedom of speech and internet and all that is has done great things but how will we ever bring it back from this post truth propaganda driven m- mind hacking bullshit world how do we bring it back now? Now that the, the cat's out of the bag. Well, how do well, we I, bring it back? Like, how, what is the... Because the solution cannot be that there is no solution. It, when it, You know, it's the same with the environment and the two are obviously massively interconnected because, you know, the very reason that we're in yeah. such trouble around climate change is because that those experts who have ignored. been telling us what to do have been... Uh, Spoken you know, over. Ignored, and not just ignored, but there has been... Yeah, Yeah. campaigns against them paid for by special interests who obviously want the other, you know, point of view out there, regardless of whether it has actually any facts behind it or not. So we're at a time, this, you know, perfect storm of that we need to be able to trust the experts and yet our trust in experts is at an all-time low and the idea of what an expert even is because it's so easy to present. As an expert, you know, we joked before about the people who don't believe in vaccinating their children, but a lot of those people think that they are listening to experts because the information that has been presented to them is being presented in the form of expertise. Yeah, and probably some of the people are experts, but but people don't understand that if you have a hundred experts and one of them saying one thing, statistically that one person is not Galileo, he's wrong, you know, and... And But it comes down to a much more fundamental problem, which is a sort of, we, we, we've ended up back at sort of Descartes, you know, we've ended up at this place where there is no such, no one knows whether they can believe anything. We're, we're back at this sort of fundamental existential doubt in the very idea of truth. So step one in getting democracy back online because democracy right now is a dead idea because if you can't inform people with reliable information you can't vote so democracy is pretty much dead you know in america it's it's dead if you can hack uh, you know this is uh, if you can hack 
people's minds, which is what you can do with Facebook, you democracy is dead. So that, first of all, we all have to agree that there is such thing as a, a good idea, that there is such thing as a better idea, that there is such thing as a fact, that there is such thing as truth, and that pursuing it is an honourable and good thing on some fundamental a priori level. So I still believe there are facts and truth, and that anyone who doesn't tell the truth as well as they possibly can should just leave the frickin' room. And that includes my progressive friends who post shit that is clearly bollocks, that assume that someone's evil when obviously they're just acting on a different set of premises. If, if you don't, we on the left, we progressives, don't seem to be valuing truth. So uh, the first thing we have to do is all agree that there's such thing as truth. We don't live in a postmodern world where everything's just a different structure and that maths is an outcome of the patriarchy. So that, that, that's everyone's job. We need to agree that there is truth and agree that it is our absolute job as human beings to pursue it. But both those things are out the window on both sides of politics, as far as I can tell. And this comes right back to the beginning. And I'm sorry, last time I promised I wouldn't do what I'm doing, which is just fucking rant because I don't know shit. But this comes right back to the beginning of the podcast when, when you, we were talking about you know, what to do and how to speak and who to be on the internet and how to raise your voice. Just be better at being brutal on yourself about whether or not you are telling truth. Not your truth, not your experience or your identity, although all that's important too, but do not lie in pursuit. Do not exaggerate or obfuscate or lie by omission in the pursuit of your truth because we're, we're fucked then. Uh, talk to me about that then as a... And we'll finish up soon because that was a very lovely way to uh, round out the entire conversation. But I'm just interested in this on as much a personal level as I am for the people who are listening. The role they, of, No one's listening. They turned off at 30 minutes. <laughs> it's not true, Tim. I know how this works. I, uh, I, I am the one person who can actually refute that. Uh, people will still be listening. And, and also, we shouldn't encourage the idea that I mean, one of the things I've hated about seeing the new influx of commercial media into the podcasting world, even though I knew it was always going to come. Yeah, it's all 20 this, minutes. It's all got to be 20 minutes. Yeah. And uh, sorry, I, I didn't go out to do this thing that had no real financial reward just so that I could suddenly be doing it to your time frame because that's the time frame you believe yeah. that it should be. No, thank you. And I have been shown by the way that people listen to this podcast i've seen this people listen to the whole thing they listen to the that's end great. you know but it's not so much i'm worried that it's long it's worried uh, i'm worried that i'm uh tiresome but anyway go ask uh, uh yeah so the role of straw man in a yep. comedic construction yes and yes. how you as an artist yes. uh, rationalize what you just said with what we do on stage when often there will be a straw man or woman, a straw person created yep. for the idea of, you know, cleverly refuting all their arguments. Well, because there's stories and then there's politics. There's stories and, and the trouble is that people respond to stories, humans respond to narratives much, much better than they respond to data. That is our problem. So you have an, as a storyteller, you have an ethical responsibility to make sure the story you're telling is good 
and as close to a truth as possible or as close to truth as possible. But in my poem, Storm, where I build a straw person, I, I put in her mouth all the dumb ideas that I've heard. None of them are fake. I, I furnish her with all the dumb ideas and then I dismantle them with whatever success you think I dismantle them. That, that is a, what is actually a Socratic dialogue. Socratic? Platonic? Yeah, no, Socratic dialogue. It's a, it's a technique of... This is what so- Socrates, what Socrates did, I'm pretty sure it was Socrates, might have been Plato. Um, you know, he'd, he'd get a, the teacher and then he'd get some doofus priest and he'd put words in their mouth and deconstruct his argument. That's a form of rhetoric. Um, but, but if you stand up in front of people uh, when you're the president, you, you have varying levels of responsibility. And when I say something in the public domain and... Andrew Bolt and Chris Kenny and Miranda Devine, all those people whose names I don't like um, plugging, come out at me and say, how dare you say this? Where's your responsibility? I say to them, I'm not a journalist. I didn't say. No one's listening to my stuff expecting a bunch of facts. But even though I'm not a journalist, I am so much more self... I am so much more careful with the truth than you punks are. And you're meant to be journalists, right? I never say anything I don't believe and I never say anything that I don't believe to be that hasn't come from research and truth. I find I'm I am incredibly like that's I'm really hard on myself about that. And 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 so I don't think storytelling, you know, the Bible would be great if they were going to listen to the stories as allegories. The problem is when people misconstrue narrative with truth we need to find a way to go okay this person's a politician he's standing up to make a speech about these protests he is only going to give you the most balanced possible interpretation of the truth of what's going on this person is a poet he's going to be speaking from the heart and you know she she's going to be uh rhyme driven which might mean you you have a sign that says silence is violence and it rhymes. And I'm like, well, silence is sometimes really important, but, you know, it rhymes. So it's got, it's got a message, you know. Um, maybe, maybe you've stumbled on something here. I'm just trying to get my head around it, which is that somehow in 2020, everyone thinks that all stories are just stories and that no one has a responsibility to be driven by data. I, I find that incredibly worrying. Uh, I have a question that I ask at the end of the podcast. I can't remember if I was asking this by the time that we spoke last time. but uh, I think you did ask a, it, an ending question. Okay, so it, it doesn't matter anyway because I've been asked to ask returning guests this question. So regardless, uh, you either have a trip on the, a time machine or you have your second trip on a time machine and you get to go back to any moment in history or go forward as it turns out it's a time machine you can go wherever you want to go um or just to your own life you know some some place in your own life uh, forward or back uh where would you go i mean i haven't i don't know i guess i'd i'd go back and make sure donald trump got love <laughs> as a child i'd go back and and find a caring nanny who likes books for donald trump (laughs) there'd be some other fuckhead rising up he's a symptom isn't he 
Well, is it, and I guess, I mean, that's not a, a fun note to finish on, but there is a theory that the problem with Trump is that, you know, we were lucky in a way that you got an idiot the first time around, but the pathway that he has now established could be uh, utilised by somebody who is much more competent and much more evil, but can push the same buttons as Donald Trump did next time around. Yeah. Look, I, I think there's a reasonable chance that um, this period, I, I think there's a reasonable chance that America will correct itself. But, but I'm not quite sure what we're going to do about the 35% of the population who basically think it's, everything's a conspiracy. So this is my little theory about America, which is ignorant and stupid and simplistic. But basically, America has said to itself for hundreds of years, we are special. And every, every American child grows up saying we are the greatest. And the, the, it is the paradigm of nationalism. And, and it's real. From living there and touring there, the, I, I would be in bars in you know small towns that I was playing on my comedy tour talking to, yes, yeah. liberal people, progressive people who were talking about, well, I live in America and we have the best healthcare yeah. system in the world. And I was just like, well, that's just not even close to being yeah. true. Like they put out lists. It's yeah. not... <laughs> no, like, even the most informed. Yeah, even even the most informed who, who know that there's lots of problems, they're like, yeah, but we're still the greatest country in the world. And... And so this assumed exceptionalism has meant that as we've hit a point, because capitalism hasn't been, because of individualism in America, they haven't really managed to turn their wealth into a good socialist society. They haven't elevated, they haven't educated their population. They haven't elevated people of colour. They haven't quite They've relied on the American dream. If you work hard enough, you will succeed. And of course, it's a lie because there's systemic structural barriers to movement. And, and because of that, it's, and, and population and everything, greed and blah, 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 it's got um, bad, right? But every American thinks that it's the greatest country in the world. So when you offer them the cognitive dissonance of the evidence that their country is hugely problematic. And with the internet, of course, we're feeding them that because they're having to read how America is greedy and expansionist and exclusive. And, you know, like all countries has problems, but their health system shit and their education system shit. And, you know, they're, they're, they have terrible problems. When you hold that up in front of them, they go, does not compute. We're the greatest country in the world. There must be another reason. Cut forward a few years and everyone's a conspiracy theorist. It can't possibly be that we need to take a good hard look at ourselves and that capitalism might not be enough. It can't be that America has it wrong. Someone else must be doing something from up top. You know, it's a, there's a conspiracy that the only problems America has must be the Jews or the media it's not man your country's just a bit broken you got to fix it but the problem is that you know anyway. when it comes to cultural imperialism at the very least and i think this is part of i would offer again as an outsider who lived there but still an outsider my perspective being that because of their cultural imperialism 
it it plastered over so many of the other problems that they were having in their society. So, yeah, you know, you yeah. were still repainting That's the right. outside yeah. of the house to look good and just not redoing any of the plumbing inside the house. Yeah. And two two things I want to say <laughs> as this podcast comes to a close, as it gets put to sleep, as it gets the green dream it so desperately needs. I don't know shit. I, I, I am absolutely aware that the more i speak the more i reveal myself to not be across the complexities of anything i'm just trying to speak on a sort of broad philosophical level and i'm really just expressing my anxiety which does no one any any service but also there are so many americas and that's part of the problem is they're just talking about america and americans is as hopeless as talking about australia and australians the trouble is National identity is a thing, but it's not the thing. It's just infinitely complicated. Yeah. It's, it's just infinitely complicated is a really good way to finish the podcast. It's pretty much what we get to yeah. at the end of every podcast. Every, so. every week, yeah. <laughs> I think that I'm anxious, therefore I am. That's all I understand. Hey, mate, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. Um, it was a delight to see your face and to actually get to talk yeah. to you. And thank you for persevering through the uh, technical issues we were having today, the new world we live in. It's a pleasure. I really like talking to you. You're a good man. All right, mate. I'll, um, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. bye. bye.